0: The scripture reading today is taken from 1 Corinthians 7:25 to 40. Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly toward his betrothed, if his passions are strong, and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. It is no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart Yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is. And I think that I too have the Spirit of God.
1: Well, before we get going, as you can tell, this is a bit of a roller coaster of a text. So let's pray before we get started. God, we, we see this text and, and some of us are maybe really scared about what it says. Others are like confused by it. Lord, I ask that you give us clarity this morning. I ask that you would, would come and dwell among us and that you would enliven our spirits to understand this text. And those in the room that have been crushed and crippled by this text, Lord, I ask that you would heal them this morning. So in this I pray. Amen. Well, as Jonathan articulated, my name is Heath and I am part of the team at Christ City. And I have the joy of... of worshiping an east van with Jake and I also have the joy of living and working on the downtown east side it is really it's fun it's chaos it's hilarious uh, but it is my joy to be here this morning I really appreciate it, and I really enjoy coming to see you in Kitsilano I've been over the last few years I've I've seen multiple iterations of what Kitsilano looks like and this is really like this is the first time I've seen this band like that is amazing like really that is amazing so thank you Um, This morning, as you can tell, we are continuing in our series in 1 Corinthians, and we are looking at the end of chapter 7. So I'll start with this story. When I was uh, much younger, and as you can tell, in a greater level of fitness than I am now, I really enjoyed backpacking and mountaineering. I grew up in the foothills of the Rockies. And my wanderlust was huge. I wanted to see every peak. I wanted to see every lake and every tree. And so my buddy and I armed with old school topographical maps because it was the pre-dawn of civilization when dinosaurs roamed the earth and there was no GPS. So what we would do is we were consumed by finding new things. And it was an area surrounding Banff National Park. So we usually try every weekend. We'd go out. You know, I skipped church. That's probably bad of me to say that out loud. But we would go out and we would purposely go and we would try to find these amazing lakes to look for grizzly bears, cougars, and whatever cool thing that we could see. We would love to be above the tree line where you could see for miles. And it was there that, that I had some of my best prayer times. But the problem was, is we got bored easily. And so every once in a while, we decided that, well, instead of the norm, instead of taking the route in, you know, on the map, and then the route out on the map, we decided that, well, actually for quite a few years, we decided that what we would do is we would take the, the trail in, Get the location, kind of the surroundings, and then we would bushwhack our way out. Not as smart as you might think it would be. You see, the challenge for us was we wanted to break out of the norm. We wanted to hone our orienteering skills, uh, and the goal was really to get back on Monday, you know, Monday before work. Uh, We really didn't get stuck too much, except for the one time we got caught on a cliff face in a snowstorm, but that is another story for another day. I tell you this. Because there comes a time when you do this sort of thing, there comes a time in every trip that you actually find yourself lost. You know, y- you've got the top of map, you find yourself in the forest, you're surrounded by trees, and, and, and you don't know where you are on the map. There's no little pinging GPS blue dot to see where you are. And so what we'd have to do in this situation is we would have to say, okay, and we would hike up and climb up back to a ridgeline. And once we got a, p- a vantage point of height, we could see where we were and provide a path for us to get back to the car. 1 Corinthians chapter (laughs) 7 is one of those places where we need to go to a ridgeline. Historically, there are a thousand landmines in this text. There are rivers of ink spread and debating on what this text means for a lot of different scenarios. And it's really, really easy to get lost in the forest in chapter 7. So to guide us home, what we're going to do is we're going to climb out of the text a bit, we're going to get to the ridgeline, and we're going to look at the surrounding context so that we can know how to make it home safely, not only safely, but all together. So with this in mind, our map for this morning, yeah, you like how I did that? Yeah, is the three points. What is the context in which Paul speaks to the Corinthian church? Two, what does Paul actually say in our text this morning to the Corinthians? And three, do we even care? Like, how does this apply to us? How does this weird context, how does this apply to us? So, point number one. Roman Corinth was a crazy place. I've had the privilege of probably visiting there 20 or 30 times to see the ruins. But back in the day, it was a bustling, crazy port city, ports on two, two seas. It was known for its social upward mobility, it was known for corruption, it was known for sexual explo- exploits, and it was also known for the athletic games in the Isthmus, the five or four mile little piece of land that separated these two ports. Today, if you can go there, you can still walk the ruins and you can see the, the amazing crumbling ruins and, and the artifacts that testified to the importance of this Roman city. We know that Paul visited Corinth in AD 51 during the reign of Emperor Claudius, and Paul planted a church there. Now I planted a church in you know, new and similar weird context, pluralistic contexts. And I don't know what it's like to have. 50 or 100 people who are all brand new believers and they're trying to figure out how does my old life intersect with who I am in Christ and how do do I deal with my sexuality? How do I deal with this? How do I deal with drug use? All of these things. It's pastoral chaos. And I had the Bible and 2,000 years of church history to help me. This Corinthian church had Paul, Apollos, a few other guys, and the Old Testament with no email. Think about that. No email. Paul stays in Corinth 18 months. And then he heads to Ephesus. And after he leaves, guess what? More chaos. More strange things happen. And so there was a flurry of email slash letters written back and forth to articulate What do we do in this scenario? What do we do in this scenario? Well, Paul writes this letter that we have here to this fledgling church. It's mired in, in behavioral chaos. But he writes this firstly to encourage them. But he also wants to confront them on their errors, their blatant sin, he also wants to give practical advice on how you actually live and deal in a world that does not know or care about Jesus Christ. And this letter that we're reading is, that, is that some of that exchange back and forth. It's like a sort of a weird, you know, like behind-the-scenes look, you know, with your camera of what it looked like to be a first, one of the first churches in Christianity. So in the last six months, we've seen this behind-the-scenes, haven't we? We've, we've just seen how messed up and how, le- how truly difficult this church was. In chapter 3, Paul gives us, you know, he addresses rifts pertaining to status and upward mobility. He chastises them for their their pride and ignorance in chapter 4. In chapter 5, he brings us face to face with the casual of arrogance of incest. At the beginning of chapter 6, Paul, distraught, he's dumbfounded by the church's lack of maturity, and and he gives them grief about suing each other backbiting, petty lawsuits. This is a church gone crazy. He then rants and and continues in chapter six, he rants about idolatry, adultery, sexual immorality, and a whole list of other things ranging from greed to thievery. Then Paul pauses. And in chapter six, verse 11, in the context of this behavioral chaos, he says these words. This is the anchor, the calm in the storm. And he says this, and such were some of you but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. He says to this church, even though you're embroiled in all of this mess, the very definition of a train wreck. He says, Paul declares a new ontological reality over them. In other words, a new state of being. And he says, in the past tense, which is really amazing, this is what you once were you are now a different people. He declares them a church that is made clean. He declares to them that they are a church set apart. That's what sanctified means, that they're holy. He also declares them a church that has been acceptable before God. That means to be justified. This messed up church, neck deep in the mud, filth, lost in the woods, confronted by a bear and a cougar at the same time, this church is declared righteous, clean, clean. But the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You used to be this, now you're this. Paul declares through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus that this is who you now are. You used to be this, and now you're this. So if you walked into this morning thinking, oh man, I'm not good enough. There's no way that I could be a Christian or or there's no way that I continue to live in this Christian life. It's so difficult. These verses are for you this morning. Just as much as they are for me and just as much as they are for the Corinthians. You used to be this. Now you're this. So with this reality firmly stated in in the minds of, of his readers... He then addresses some of the most difficult things that we read. It's like the sexual chaos of the use and misuse of the city's temple prostitutes. As if it couldn't get any worse, right? In participation with and use of these slaves, Paul says that in fact, what you're doing is an act of worship. And it's dedicated to the patron goddess of the city, Aphrodite. Now, Aphrodite was the Greek goddess of love and her temple there's a, in Corinth, there's a pinnacle of rock that sticks out of, the, out of the earth. And at the top of this rock, you can climb there, it takes like a couple of hours. And right on the top was this temple for Aphrodite. Well, Paul is saying that you can't worship God, the one who made you clean and uses the services of Aphrodite at the same time. It doesn't, it, it's incongruous. So he then says in chapter six, verses 19 and 20, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? Whom you have from God. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. Paul orients them to right worship. To the one who makes them clean. The temple, which is us, is the very presence of God. He dwells in us bodily. And we are violating that with the worship of Aphrodite and sex. So for the the Corinthian church, the very logical question was like, okay, um, how then is one to glorify God with our body? If I'm not my own, if I'm bought with the blood of Jesus, how then do I glorify God with my body? And this is where we find ourselves in chapter seven. This is the lay of the land. This is the ridgeline that we can look across and see the topography, the sexual chaos, the muck, the mire, the corruption, the divisions all come to this practical point is how does the church in Corinth glorify God with their bodies? So here in chapter seven, Paul outlines what it looks like. And we've looked at these over the past month, haven't we? We've looked at marriage. How do we glorify God in the context of our marriages? How do we deal with this if we're divorced or if we're single or if we're widowed or widower? How do we deal with this if we want to physically alter our bodies? You know, Paul deals with circumcision. And Paul even addresses how to glorify God with your body even if you lack personal agency. In other words, if you're enslaved. This morning, you probably noticed that we're going to talk about singleness and marriage and not marriage. So this brings us to point number two is, what does Paul actually say to this Corinthian church in this text? Now, at the beginning of chapter 7, Paul says this. Now, concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Now, a group of well-intentioned people, maybe, um, in response to the current cultural climate and chaos, they, they, they concluded that, okay, sex must be a bad thing. It must be a weakness, a lower form of Christianity you know, that we should be avoiding and we, because it just doesn't make us pure. It, it stains us, as Paul has already articulated, right? It's a distraction from glorifying God. So that what they were saying, is that what they were teaching was, look, it's not good for a, a man to have sexual relations with a woman. These people correctly understood the problems that occurred. They came to the right conclusions, except for the fact that they didn't deal with it correctly. They, they thought that maybe we can control this by external behavioral modification and abstain from every sort of sexual relations. Now, you can imagine the bifurcation that would happen in the church, you know? So people were left wondering, okay, this morning, is like, if I'm engaged, is that okay? Do I still get married? What if I really want to get married? Is that wrong? Do I have to be single and live a, an asexual, sexless you know, existence to glorify God? So Paul confronts these issues directly, and he says this. The issue really isn't about marriage or celibacy, and which is the preferred state of the Christian. No, what he does, he says, the issue is how do you glorify God with your body if you're a married person, if you're divorced? And how do you glorify God if you're single and celibate? So, after dealing with marriage, divorce, uh, body modification, and slavery, Paul says this in verse 25. Now, concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in the view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if, you have a, and if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you of that. We have to understand one significant thing about Roman culture. Marriage was the expected default setting. Singleness really wasn't a thing unless you were enslaved, and then you didn't own yourself anyway. You had no agency the Roman Empire was built, founded, and existed and held together by marital duty and marriage. There was an expectation. If you were not married, for whatever reason, whether you were divorced or, or whether you had lost a spouse, there was an expectation, and I've read some stuff that there was even time limits associated with these things, that you would be expected to be married to contribute to the power and the glory of the empire. This is a very different cultural expectation than we find in Vancouver, Right? Yeah, Paul starts and states here that Jesus did not give specific instructions on how to deal with this particular scenario, but Paul says, look, I have apostolic authority and I have wisdom and I'm going to speak into them and give you my judgment. And he says, I think in the view of this present distress, you should remain as you are. Remain as you, remain as you are. Now, when Paul refers to this present distress, I think he's referring to a few things here. I think he's referring to the local church chaos that existed I also think he could be referring to a famine under Claudius. He also could be referring to the ever-present reality of persecution as a Christian. So the singles in the church are left warning, do I get married? Should I have a spiritual marriage only? Uh, Is it a right thing to bring children into this world? Does that sound familiar? Hmm. Paul says clearly, he says this, in the light of this present distress, of all the stuff that you're dealing with, do not be troubled. Are you engaged? No brainer. Face emoji. Get married. Are you currently single? Stay single. Neither scenario is wrong. Neither scenario is sin. Neither scenario is more holy than the other. You can both glorify God in your bodies in either situation. But you have to understand what Paul says here is actually really subversive to the Roman Empire. I actually kind of like it. It's completely countercultural. That's the anarchist in me coming out. With, with, in a, in a marriage dominated society, Paul says to singles, I have elevated you through the Lord, that being single is okay and it's right and it's okay. But Paul also says, well, in fact, if you're married, guys, guess what? You're going to have more troubles in this world. Pointing out the obvious face palm emoji. Now, in a culture where singleness was an inferior state, Paul. Elevates the single person to one that is valued, appreciated, and worthy. Let's continue verse 29. This is what I mean, brothers. From the appointed, time has ver- the, rather, the appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. And you're like, what? And those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. Now on first read, if you, if, you, if you aren't engaged in this context, on first read it looks like Paul takes this bus that is the church, shifts it into a, some weird apocalyptic end of times gear, and drives it off the edge of the cliff like some sort of Mad Max scenario. It would be easy to think that Paul here has a sandwich board that says, fatalistic doomsday prophet. He's predicting the end of the world. Well, not really. See, the danger for us is to read this thinking that, okay, lift it from the context, therefore I just have to deal with life in a stoic way. Just like, okay, I'm gonna live my internal spiritual state and deal with the physicality of stuff and just let it deal. I think Paul actually is dealing with elements of of the weirdly odd prophetic apocalyptic stuff in the context of the church. And Paul says, in your distress over singleness or marriage and being worried about the coming end of the world, you miss this point. He says, Instead of, Paul does something really brilliant here, instead of emphasizing the closeness of the end of time, he flips it on his head and he highlights the fleeting nature of the things of this world and our relationship to it. Paul is not addressing an end of time specific apocalyptic event here, but rather, hear me, he is addressing an apocalyptic process. What do I mean by that? A change in the fabric of humanity that has begun with the decisive events of Jesus Christ on the cross through his death, burial, and resurrection. Something that you can look back to. And this is what he's talking about here. Turn back with me again. I'll read verse ch- chapter six, verse 11. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. It's in these events that, by Jesus that Paul grounds his his whole posture here. He articulates that there is a change to the fabric of reality and humanity through Jesus Christ. Paul is not advocating withdrawal or even a renunciation of the world here, specifically in talking about marriage, joy, rejoicing, mourning, or even singleness. But rather, Paul says here that we now live in a world that's temporal in nature. And it's it's this sphere that we are to operate in as Christians because we have been washed, because we have been justified. In other words, right before God, because we have been sanctified, because we've been set apart as holy. Paul says to this church that despite present and impending circumstances from famine, persecution maybe, singleness or whatever, this church was called to obey God's will and to act as beacons of his glory. Their lives were a practical metaphor of the work of Jesus Christ in the face of difficult and troubling circumstances, whatever they may be, single, married, divorced, enslaved, etc. Now, verse 31 is really interesting. I love metaphors. That's why I like telling stories. But in verse 31, he, uses, he says that the sphere we have to use the sphere of the world without being consumed by it. And the reason is this, Paul says, it's because the external structures of the world, and this is the way the Greek word reads underneath, because the external structures of the world are disappearing like an actor walking across the edge of the stage. Oh, that's fascinating. So with this, we have to have this firmly established in our mind before we hit this next part. Verse 32, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord Now, this text can be a bit confusing because in English, we only use this term anxiety in a negative sense, don't we? You know, the word anxious in Greek has actually a dual meaning. Now, it does mean stressed, nervous, anxious, concerned about circumstances, but it also means it positively to concentrate or devote one's concern to a specific topic, concern or situation. Paul's desire in this present time of distress, that's what he says here, is that these new Christians would be free from undue stress, undue concern, anxiousness pertaining to marriage and singleness. He then uses this play on words and he says, look, the unmarried man is free to devote his concern to the things of the Lord. And to the married, Paul says, they are divided. But more succinctly, what he says is that they are pulled in two directions having to devote their concerns to the Lord and also to devote their concerns to their spouse. Paul's desire here in speaking to singles is not to place a really extremely tight noose of asceticism or authoritative teaching, but rather to celebrate and to be transparent about the freedom and advantage that singleness provides in the undivided attention to the Lord. Let me repeat that. Paul's desire is to be transparent, to be very clear about the freedom and the advantage that singleness provides in undivided devotion to the Lord to reflect His glory. Being married and being single can glorify God in their bodies. Sure, absolutely. But Christians, but single Christians have the benefit out of the gate of not necessarily being pulled in two different directions. Now this does not diminish the hardships that singles have. But Paul clearly defines that they can utilize this benefit for his glory. The whole issue is about focus and devotion on the Lord. So with this benefit in mind, Paul continues and says, look, if you decide to be married, yeah, okay, that's of course. You will do well. It's okay. It's not a sin. You can be married and to be devoted to God. But in specific terms, Paul here says the capacity that you have to wholly devote to God, pragmatically, you're divided. But if you're single, oh, you will do much better. That text has been used to cripple a lot of people over the years. This isn't some sort of super-duper Christian single scenario where they have like a cape with a big S on them, SS, super single. This is not what it's saying. It's not what it's saying. Let's continue in verse 36. If anyone thinks he is not behaving properly towards his betrothed, if his passions are strong, and it has to be, like, no, duh, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. It is no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, in other words, you have to have the right conviction, being under no necessity, not forced by anybody else, but having his desires under control and has determined this in his heart, to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So then he who marries so then he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. A wife bound to her husband as long as he lives, but, but if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. Yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is. And I think that I too have the Spirit of God. Now, as a side, I think I've been married 25 years, and I think if I passed away, my, my wife would say, yeah, she'd probably be happier to remain as she is. But anyway, that's a whole other issue. What this is not saying, Christ City, is that either situation, whether marriage or singleness, is greater or inferior than the other. Ratherly, if I can say it that way. Each lifestyle is good and right, and to the glory of God, it's reflected in the different ways that we interact with the right attitude. When you're married, you have the, the benefit of intimacy and companionship, which you are truncated in your flexibility to serve God. Now, if you're single... You have greater flexibility to serve God, but you will be continually dogged by loneliness, lack of intimacy, and frustrations of having to do everything yourself. Singles in the group, you know. like People always say, oh, you have more time. Well, no, you don't, because you've got to do everything yourself. It's more flexibility is what the issue is. God is appropriately glorified. Here's the thing. God is glor- He's glorified in either lifestyle. So the issue here, as well as all of chapter 7, is thus. It isn't a, a weird celibacy versus marriage, you know, cage match. But rather, it's the work of Jesus. On behalf, as we repent, as we turn to him, we are made new. What we once were is gone. We now live and we engage in a world in a new paradigm. And in this new reality, this new change of life, Paul says that we can glorify God and it's wholly appropriate to glorify God if you're married, if you're divorced, if you're single, even if you're enslaved. All of it is a beacon of fidelity and hope around concerning the sexual chaos around us. Paul in this text is saying that being married isn't even the only or the best option. The Roman status quo of marriage is done away with and that being single is a good option thing. It has clear and distinct advantages and in worship and fidelity to God. That brings us to our third point. How do we deal with this? How do we apply this in our culture where marriage isn't the default setting? Where, Where finding a spouse seems more difficult than a unicorn sighting? Like really, how do we deal with this? Where getting married is very problematic and for some singleness isn't even a choice. Like Paul, he describes, some of you Singleness has been forced upon you, either through through lack of spouse availability or, or, or abandonment. Does this text here in chapter 7 have any hope or value for us today? Absolutely it does. And I think there, in the time that we have left, I want to look at two uh, false beliefs that exist in our culture that Paul deals directly with in chapter 7. The first false belief is that singleness is all about you. If the Romans had a bias of marriage, our culture, (laughs) we have a bias of singleness, and it's expressed as personal autonomy, is it not? We have elevated personal self expression and liberated our internal passion as absolutes. Therefore, we do not need anyone else's stuff to contribute to our fulfillment. We got it on ourselves. We don't need anybody else to contribute to our personal expression. We are wholly devoted to our comfort and our pursuit of happiness. Now, I'm obviously painting with large strokes here. The guiding principle in our culture is this: that we, you know, we have to be true to ourselves, don't we? We have to manifest our own reality. Culturally speaking, we have been transformed into a society of narcissists. I was chatting with an old, an old guy this week on the downtown east side. He's an old police officer, and he's about as rough and gruff as you can get. His story is, is a story of heartache and joy and redemption all at the same time. But, but he, he, says to, he said to me this week, we were, I was chatting with him, one of the things I love to run my sermon ideas by non-Christians to see the reactions I get. It's crazy. So in running by this, he says, Heath, come on, man, pull your head out of your butt. That's not what he said, but that's okay. <laughs> he said this, It's a greater sin to get married for the wrong reasons than to just have sex outside of marriage. You're an idiot, Heath. Oh, what is he saying? He's expressing that if, you, if all you need is sexual fulfillment, just don't get married. Take care of it yourself with no conditions, no commitments attached, no limits on what you can do, with no constraints on my personal autonomy or agency, with no harm to anyone else. Unfortunately, our self-sufficiency has blinded us to the consequences of transactional sex. The ironic thing for us is that in the pursuit of ourself, you now, whether you're, you know, a Christian coming to church or whether you're in the culture at large, we fall headlong into Paul's cautions against being anxious of the things of this world, don't we? In our singleness, instead of devotion to God, we are we come pulled and, and we end up trying to be devoted to ourselves and, and we are fractured by it. Self- Focus becomes selfishness which enslaves and it traps us in the very thing that Paul wants us to avoid. Instead of devotion to God, we are pulled into devotion to self and we are unable to maintain fidelity to ourselves. When that happens, what happens? I have conversations with people every week. We unravel and it's a train wreck because we become enslaved to our singleness and the unfulfillment that occurs there. In our present culture that is obsessed with self, Christ City, we need to be reminded this morning that if you call yourself a Christian, we are not our own. We were bought with a price. Singleness, just like marriage, is not entirely lived for you or about you, but rather lived in devotion to the glory of God. Your singleness, chosen or not, is to be lived in devotion to God, Reflecting his love, his care, his glory to those around you. It's hard because it requires you to be what? Settled in your singleness. Now, commenting on these verses, another friend of mine said to me this week He said, Heath, a settled mind in these things seems important. I'm quoting him here. Not waffling back and forth. I have personally found that being settled in my singleness gives me more love for others, more compassion for this world, rather than searching for a marriage partner, even though there are times when I desire to have a wife. Some of you this morning are unsettled, and you're broken by it. Others of you this morning, you're trying to cover it up, but you're really leaning in hard to our cultural bias about self. Both of you need to be reminded, this is what you once were. You don't have to be enslaved by that. Repent. Reorient your identity on the one who can give you something that you truly need. The one who sanctified you, who made you clean, and that is Jesus Christ. Now the second false belief is essentially the uh, other side of the same coin. And it states this, that singleness equates to some purposeless existence. Our culture I'll just state it this way. All culture vilifies sexual purity, does it not? We have been waterboarded into the cultural narrative that celibacy, whether chosen or not, is somehow inferior, somehow even harmful. What we've done is we've, if we've linked our sexual desires to our identity. Sex has become an end and of itself. And as a result, sexual fulfillment is also the ultimate expression of our purpose. And as a single person, whether you choose to remain celibate through circumstances or find yourself unwillingly there, you are sold a lie that says your life and your station is to be pitied above all else. Pathetic, somehow inferior, even psychologically damaging. Christ City, hear me this morning. Hear me resolutely this morning. That is a lie. That's a huge lie. here Paul, Paul's words from verse 38 in our text this morning. So then he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. That is a beacon. Uh, it's, it's It's like a ray of light in a dark morning. Know that your identity is not rooted in your singleness, whether it's chosen or not. Your value in this world is not dependent on your sexual activity, chosen or not. Your value, your identity, your purpose is rooted in Jesus Christ. The righteous one who, who in his singleness, think about that. In his singleness, he took all of your pain. He took all of your shame. He took all of your suffering. He took all of your longingness and your loneliness and he bore it on himself on a cross. A single person died so all of us can live. Your singleness is a very, hear this clearly, your singleness is a very visible metaphor of obedience and devotion and fidelity displayed by Jesus on the cross. That's a beacon of hope to our culture. Your singleness points to Jesus, and that's why the world mocks you. Know this you are not something to be pitied, but you are to be celebrated, cared for, and upheld. And Paul has shown us this morning, your suffering and your singleness has meaning and it has value. So as we close today, there's only one more practical thing I need to say. And it's directed to the married people in the room. Ah, you thought you would be off the hook, huh? The benefit, hear hear me on this, the benefit of being wholly devoted to the Lord, practically speaking, It doesn't feel so hot when the body of Christ doesn't do its job. (laughs) Being single doesn't feel better on the ground when the church doesn't act like the body of Christ. So, we who are married need to repent of the times when we've treated singles like guests rather than family members. We need to repent when singles are used and abused, taken advantage of us, because of course they have more time than I do, so they can help me fulfill what I need to do because I'm, you know, I, I'm better than they are. Oh, we need to repent of that. We also need to lament the times when the call of obedience is hard and we casually blow off their struggles and temptations as some sort of asexuality super gift. Christ City, in this season, we also need to apologize to the singles in our community who we've let unwittingly languish during our present time in global pandemic. So if you call yourself a Christian here this morning, we are all part of the same family. None of us are greater than the other. Let's work together to help each other survive together so we can all glorify God with our bodies. If you do not call yourself a Christian here this morning and you're trapped in your singleness, know that you are not your own. Hear me clearly, that Jesus died so you too can be purchased, so you too can be freed, and so you too can glorify God with your body. Let's pray. God, I confess that our society has left us shipwrecked on how to deal and glorify you with our bodies. So Lord, I ask that you'd knit us together anew. I ask that you'd continually remind us that we are not our own, but we are yours. And so, Lord, I pray that you would be with us this week as we live this out. And this I pray by your Son who is at your right hand. Amen.